All right, good morning. It's great to see you guys here today at Hope and Anchor Church. I'm excited to continue uh, spending time in the Word together. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this week. hope you've enjoyed this sunny, nice, warmer weather because I think it's about to change. I think this week we're in for another round of snow, potentially, which is all right by me. But, you know, I know everyone starts getting a little antsy, starts looking forward to spring. And so I like spring, too. I'm not anti-spring, so that's fine. Uh, today we're continuing in our Law and Prophets series. Today is week uh, 15, with week 15 in what turns out to be a 22-part series. And um, today's message is called Dancing in the Holocaust. Dancing in the Holocaust. Um, came across a story about the American author uh, jo Joseph Bailey. Joseph Bailey one time uh, recounted a story in which he, he had visited with a German Christian. A German Christian who had served in Hitler's Third Reich during World War II. Because of his Christian faith, uh, his Christian faith was very important to him. This German soldier had deeply held convictions. And you can imagine how <laughs> serving in the Nazi regime, this could really set you up for some challenging situations, right? Uh, he, he had some deeply held Christian convictions uh, even throughout all of the Nazi atrocities that we know about now that were taking place during World War II. The, this German Christian told Joseph Bailey of a time when Hitler himself, Hitler himself had ordered him along with some other soldiers to attend a, a planned social event. It was a dance. Hitler had told this Christian soldier to attend a dance. This dance would have fine food and live music, but it was strategic. It was scheduled to entertain powerful dignitaries and important officers from the Nazi party. But here's the thing. Because dancing went against his deeply held religious beliefs, this German Christian uh, boldly and at great risk refused this order. He refused to follow the order that Hitler had given him. This daring Nazi soldier had disobeyed an order, refusing to participate in a dance. Why? Because of his Christian convictions. He would not dance because it violated his conscience. Although he was actively complicit, participating in the Nazi extermination campaign, the Nazi extermination campaign against the Jews and against others all across Europe. His faith, while it compelled him to stand up against the evils of dancing, did not compel him to stand up against genocide, against the Holocaust. His faith somehow allowed him to administer torture. His, his lived-out expression of the Christian faith allowed him to participate in the administration of torture to send people into gas chambers to commit murder, yet when it came to dancing, he was courageous enough to stand up to Hitler, to hold fast to his resolve. This brave Christian, he was defiant in the face of social dancing because he was no doubt compelled by his deep faith in our risen Jewish Savior, Jesus. <laughs> Does this seem like a strange story to you? I mean, as you heard, I saw some of your faces, you're kind of like, hit it, eyebrows, you know, <laughs> like, what? what? They're all dancing around. 
there's something weird about this story. There's something a bit off as we read about this Christian who held to his Christian beliefs, who had deeply held uh, uh, understandings of what it meant to follow Jesus and applied them rigorously in certain areas of life while completely overlooking other areas of far greater import. This story, it seems weird because this, soldier's, this German soldier's convictions were a little, nay, a lot out of whack. They were skewed. His priorities were skewed. They were disordered. While this example is a little over the top, sadly true, but over the top, it serves a, a, an important purpose here today. It draws into painful relief how obnoxious our disordered convictions can be. Especially as we go out into the world known as Jesus' people, disordered convictions, out-of-whack priorities can be really obnoxious. So we look at this story and we think, how could he? How could this Christian brother in Germany serving under the Nazi regime, how could he be so blind? How could he be so lopsided and, and, and gross in his application of the Christian faith? Well, we mustn't be too quick to pile on this poor German soldier. Why? Because we are all tragically capable of doing the same thing. We're capable of the same thing. Yeah, it's not going to be maybe dancing in the in holocausts, but we're all capable of this same strange imbalance. Why, Pastor Adam, what do you mean? What do you mean, my invisible interlocutor might ask? Well, I'll tell you, this is what I mean. Us humans, especially Christians, unfortunately Christians, have a propensity we are drawn toward minoring in the majors and majoring in the minors, focusing on specks of sawdust while overlooking logs. Well, there's something in us. We're just like drawn toward the specks. We just don't like specks of sawdust. But we're pretty much okay with logs a lot of the time. We will howl in protest at a monument of the Ten Commandments being removed from a courthouse. We will howl in protest at an offensive southern statue, but we will too often remain oddly silent about sin and all its friends. How sin and spiritual lostness, moral and social decay, rears its ugly head in so many ways all around us. I mean, in the face of actual wars being waged, genocide taking place, People being pressed into, uh, into slavery. Did you know there's more slaves today than there's ever been in, in, human, in known human history? Like economic slavery. People because of their faith, because of their ethnicity, forced into trafficking, into uh, uh, degrading, dehumanizing work. Not paid. I mean, they're owned by somebody else to one degree or another. We live in a broken world. Sin and its friends are running rampant around here. And we, as Christians, are often more motivated by what we hear on Fox News or on MSNBC than what we read about in Scripture and are told by Jesus. Does this not bother us? It should. It should. I mean, I'm not here to make everybody mad today, but maybe I need to stir the pot a little bit. Guys, I run into Christians, people who love Jesus, that have more to say about so-and-so 
authorizing the removal of a, of a monument that has the Ten Commandments or, or this and that thing that's just being pushed to the front by the media, all the while real people are suffering. Real people are cut off from the love of God from, by circumstance or by ignorance. And we have nothing to say about that. Wow, shame on us. Here's what I think might be going on in our righteous zeal. We can find ourselves a little too big for our spiritual britches. Maybe that's an old saying. Hopefully that's not like offensive to anybody, but your grandma probably said that, right? We can end up finding ourselves thinking too highly of ourselves. We can find ourselves sneering at those who are not living up to our level of religious awesomeness. We can find ourselves sneering and looking down on those who are choosing to sin differently than we do. I hope I'm making my point clear. This is in us. It's in us. Our poor German Christian brother was not a, he was an extreme example, but he was not an unusual example. He was not an anomaly. This happens in us. Jesus knew this about us. He knew this about those people around him on the hillside in Matthew. Guys, he knows us. This is why in this whole Sermon on the Mount business, I think it's important for us to pay attention. Pay attention to what Jesus chooses to talk about. Knowing who Jesus is and Jesus knowing who we are, He chose things to talk about, to point out, to draw our attention to, to correct in us, and I think it was on purpose. Ought we not pay attention? Wait, ought we not pay attention? We should pay attention. <laughs> Got a little bit into a verbal cul-de-sac there for a second, but I'm good now. Jesus was painfully aware of how we vacillate. How big of a mess we are sometimes. How, how at once we feel shame, genuine shame, about the, the lingering sin in ourselves, but also our temptation, our, our tendency to dump shame on others. It's like misery loves company. If we feel ashamed, we want others to feel ashamed too. We want to tear others down as we struggle to lift ourselves up. It's like we are constantly playing a game of king of the hill. We're either trying to climb up from below, somehow overcome our shame and our sin, or we are shoving people off and kicking them down, shaming and blaming them as they go. It's like we can't figure out how we ought to live. So what's the result? In the end, Christians, the people who bear Jesus' name, we end up looking ridiculous. And we end up making the gospel suspect as we go out into the world, tweezering specks of sawdust in other people's eyes while having oaks of unrighteousness planted firmly in our own. So, all that being said, maybe it's a good use of our time today then to hear what Jesus would say to us. Because we've reached that point in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus turns his attention to just this problem, just to this tendency in us. So put down your tweezers and pick up your Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye, when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite! Exclamation point. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. 
How many have heard this passage before? Yeah, we, we talk about this a lot. And uh, in verse 1 and 2, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard by, you use in judging is the standard by which you'll be judged. Unhelpfully, some very <laughs> uh, liberated theologians have taken this passage and boiled it down into a two-word summary of the whole Bible. If you listen to some of these uh, theologians, these, these believers, they will... They will make you, lead you to believe that all of Jesus' teachings, all of the Bible can be boiled down to two words. Judge not. Just don't judge and you're good. That's all you need to do. Judge not. It's as simple as that. This is an example of reductionist theology at its very best, actually. This is an oversimplification. To read what Jesus tells us here and come away with like, okay, judge not. We are never to judge. Wrong. I'm judging that right now. That's wrong. That's wrong. This is an oversimplification. And this oversimplification is unhelpful. Why? Because it's ignorant. It's ignorant and it, ignore, it ignores what Jesus actually said. And it's unhelpful. It leads us into a, into a place, into a kind of world that none of us actually want to live in. In reality, no one wants to live in a world uh, where there are no judges. No one wants to actually live in a world where judgment doesn't take place, where no one is discerning between good and evil, between truth and error, between right and wrong. Jesus actively repudiates and defies this silly, unbiblical notion that we should never judge. If we're Christians, we should judge not. That's to wildly, dangerously miss the point. We find ourselves contributing to the kind of world that is dehumanizing, the kind of world no one actually wants to live in. The defining nature of Homo sapiens, you know we're, we're uh, scientifically classified as Homo sapiens. Do you know what Homo sapiens means? It means wise man. It means knowing man. We are wise, knowing man. Wisdom and knowing, they only come by doing things like discovering, correcting, and judging. It's, at our very, it's how we're named scientifically. We judge stuff. We are knowing man. We are wise man. So what then is Jesus talking about here? Well, let's clarify. Jesus is cautioning here against hypocrisy. Jesus is cautioning here against a lack of humility when we go out and rightfully judge between right and wrong, pursue truth and refute error. Going out with a spirit of hypocrisy and a lack of humility. That's the problem Jesus is cautioning us against. Indeed, hear this. If you cannot judge with humility and fairness, then by all means, judge not. You're in no place to judge. If you can't be fair and if you can't be humble, keep your mouth shut. I mean, there's nothing you're contributing uh, in, to the good in the world by opening your trap. Just don't judge. But... If you are willing to judge yourself first, uh, if you are willing to judge yourself first, then we are called uh, to righteously interact in our world. So, I want to be clear about that. If you're unwilling to judge yourself first, do not judge anyone else. Begin your correction of others with a ruthless self-inventory. I think Jesus is saying, hey, check yourself before you wreck yourself here. You will be called into situations where you must correct, where you must 
call out even sometimes. But make sure you're coming from the right place where you've examined yourself. You've done a ruthless self-inventory. And then, when you must judge others, do it in love. Do it guided by a concern for their well-being, which is key. Make sure you are motivated by a desire for their growth and their salvation. Okay, sometimes we are so bold to correct somebody because we really just want to feel vindicated. Something's been bugging us. We want to set them straight. We want to be right. And if we really turn inward and look at our motivations, we'll identify that, right? So do not bring it up until you are ready to open-handedly say, I want the best for you. I want your growth. I want you to draw closer to God. And I see this thing, and it's got to be addressed. And in all humility, I say, we've got we've to talk about this. We've got to talk about this. Judging others with fear and trembling, aware that the perfect, holy judge of the universe is watching us and will measure your life by the same standard you used. That should be a tempering agent right there. Whatever measurement, whatever standard I'm going to apply to you, whatever I'm going to hold you up to, that's the exact same thing that's going to be uh, applied to my life. And that's the, that's the, 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 the most uh, effective detector of hypocrisy. When you start applying that same standard to yourself, does it make you cringe? Does it make you feel uh, embarrassed? Does it make you start waffling? Like, whoa, whoa, they, they don't know. They don't know what I've been through. You know, it's not different for me. You know, pay attention to that. The standard you use to judge others is the standard that God will use to judge you. Let's look at verse 3 through 5. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So he says, yes, get rid of that in your eye so that you can deal effectively and rightly with the, with the speck in your friend's eye. Both of these things are necessary. They must happen. It's part of our calling as humans and as Christ followers. But job one is to get the tree out of your own eye before you go chasing down the speck in your friend's. Christ-like humility demands that we begin with introspection. As a Christ follower who is pursuing mature, Christian maturity and becoming more like Jesus, we should be quick to daily uh, introspect. Look inside. Step into the light of Jesus and say, Hey, search me and know me. Know my anxious thoughts. Is there wicked ways in me still? Root them out. Refine me. Purify me through the work of your Holy Spirit. Christ-like humility demands that we begin with introspection, especially when we are compelled and called upon to correct another person. Being in the pastoral role that I'm in, sometimes I'm called to be the guy that has to call to set up an appointment with somebody that I know I'm going to have to say some hard stuff. And that's hard because sometimes I don't... I mean, I've told you I'm a middle child. I don't like doing that anyway, but... Sometimes I don't feel like I'm in a place where I can say those things, but I must. I must. So those times, those, 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 those situations demand that I spend time with the Lord. And I'm willing to confess my own faults and my own brokenness, but able to say, hey, I care about you. 
And I want you to, uh, to, to flourish, and I want you to grow, and I want you to become more like Jesus too. And so let's go to Jesus together and bring this out to the open. You know, so if you're called, compelled to correct somebody, begin with introspection. Sit with the Lord. Lay your whole life before Him and say, search me and know me. Now, Jesus is here using an intentionally hyperbolic example. He illustrates a person vigorously accosting a friend because they have a speck of dust in their eye while they themselves literally have a tree lodged in their own. We read this now, we're like, that's a kind of a <laughs> ridiculous story. Well, yeah, everyone around Jesus at the time was like, <laughs> a speck of sawdust in a whole tree? Yeah, Jesus is painting an intentionally exaggerated mental picture here for his listeners. He's painting an exaggerated picture in his listeners' minds on purpose to illustrate, guys, this is how it looks when you judge other people unfairly. Yeah, as ridiculous as that mental picture seems in your mind, that's how ridiculous it looks when you go out nitpicking other people's behavior when you've not dealt with your own. Imagine a scenario where you are being wheeled into surgery for an intricate eye, sur eye repair, something that, that, to fix something wrong with your vision. You're on the gurney, you're in the gown, you're being rolled into the operating suite, uh, and just as the anesthesiologist is starting to get to work, they're establishing the IV access, they're like, all right, you're just going to feel a little sleepy, blah, blah, blah. While that's happening, you catch a glimpse of the surgeon only to discover that she is blind. Imagine in that moment how much panic you would feel inside. I'm about to go under the knife to get something corrected in my vision, and as I'm being lulled into anesthetic and sleep, yes, thank you. As I was going for anesthesiological slumber, but that's a little, that's a lot of wasted syllables. Sleep, I like that. You catch a glimpse before you lose consciousness of the, of the surgeon feeling her way in. Maybe has one of those canes with the red tip. And you're like, oh, no. Panic. You would feel panic. Likewise, um, we have to be careful to not create that kind of situation. We, in a way, cause panic in others when they see us coming, knowing that we ourselves are unqualified to point these things out in their life. We're unwilling to deal with it in our own lives. So, we are to approach others. We are approach, to approach the judging of others with much fear and trembling. When we must correct ungodly behavior, let's be careful to not cause panic. Okay? Let's not cause panic in the people we're trying to help. Let's make sure that we are coming first from a place of self-examination, of repentance, of humility, and with a genuine Christ-like care and concern for them and their well-being. Can we do that? Let's start there. If we can't do that, nothing you're about to say is going to help. It's only going to cause harm. So be patient. Spend time with the Lord. Or, as the great bard Shakespeare reminds us, if he which is the top of judgment should, but judge you as you are, oh, think on that. And mercy then will breathe within your lips like man made new. Shakespeare, 
Oh, Bill is opening fire on us there. Listen again. If he, which is the top of judgment, should, but judge you as you are, oh, think on that. And mercy then will breathe within your lips like man made new. My friends, my brothers and sisters, may we go from here with mercy breathing on our lips. May mercy breathe within our lips as we go out into the world as God's people. As we step into our calling to speak truth and to bring healing and to pursue hopefulness in the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would hear Jesus' words and feel an appropriate conviction. God, ours is a high calling as we follow Jesus and as we go out into the world as truth tellers, as people who are bringing uh, the light into dark places. I pray that we would go uh, steeped in humility, committed to honest self-examination, the practice of confession and repentance, laying our whole lives daily before you so that we are less and less like hypocrites and more and more like you. God, it's a bad thing when our relationships are, are hijacked by unconfessed sin or by uh, uh, confused priorities. And it's made all the worse by a lack of humility in us. God, when your people, who are often the, ways that, the way that you are responding in the world, your people are the way that you're responding to the brokenness, the sin, and all its friends, and how they're rearing their heads. You're responding through us. God, forgive us for the times when we've, found our, when we've been unqualified to speak truth. We've been unqualified and unprepared to, to bring right judgment into the world because of... Uh, our lack of confession and our lack of, of um, self-examination. God, I pray that your people would become more and more marked by humility, that we would seek to honor you first and foremost, that we would go out with a genuine care and concern for the people you've placed in our lives. God, sin is wrecking the place. There's so much spiritual and moral decay there's so much social experimentation going on. People are just being dehumanized and, and used in our world today. And God, if your church is the hope of the world, that we're the ones sent out to bring uh, hope and healing, to be restorers of dwellings and to rebuilders of roads. I mean, we're supposed to be uh, working for the welfare of our city. And sometimes we never get past the door because we're so jacked up. We're so inconsistent. And we're so offensive to the watching world for the wrong reasons. So God, do work in our heart today. Let us listen closely to what Jesus tells us in the first part of Matthew 7. We take on the responsibility of, uh, of judging, of, 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 of seeking correction and, and wholeness. But being more and more aware of our tendency toward hypocrisy and, and uh, disordered priorities. Confused, contradicting values in our lives. Now, I, I like it that Jesus was aware of our tendency to just be big walking bags of contradiction. And he came to sort that out with us. He's so patient with us. So God, I pray that we would feel that patience and then we would pass that patience on to others. Lord, do a work here today. I know uh, we've said a lot, but... Um, the things your Holy Spirit can say to us now, those are the most important. So speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey, we're going to worship a bit more. And this is the time to sit with the Lord. If you'd like to pray and just get some things out in the open. Maybe there's some conviction. Maybe there's some confession and repentance that needs to happen. Let that happen today. Because there's important work to do this week. Let's look intently to Jesus. Let's look intently into the Word. And then go forth in a place, in an attitude of humility. There's a grace.